0: Okay, let's uh, go ahead and get started. Um, Welcome to our study of taking God at his word, why the Bible is knowable, necessary, and enough, and what it means for you and me, by Kevin DeYoung. Let's begin our study this morning with prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would use this time to convict us of our utter and complete dependence on the Holy Spirit for the ability to understand the gospel. Give us spiritual illumination to understand all that you have revealed to us in scripture. And we pray that you would use this body to reach those who are walking in darkness, those whose minds are blinded by the God of this world, who regard your truth as, as foolishness Use us to reach them with the truth of the gospel of your Son. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, So, Taking God at His Word by Kevin DeYoung has eight chapters. This morning, we will be studying chapter six, entitled, God's Word is Necessary. In our last chapter, we looked at how God's word is final, and the topic of our next chapter will be how Christ's Bible is unbreakable. As a reminder, our author, Kevin DeYoung, is currently the senior pastor at Christ Covenant Church in Matthews, North Carolina. DeYoung is a member of the Gospel Coalition's Council. He also contributes articles to various other evangelical organizations, such as World Magazine, Nine Marks, and Desiring God. We'll be starting our study this morning with Kevin DeYoung's introduction to the material in Chapter 6. It reads as follows. Most of us, deep down, want the same things out of life. Of course, I'm talking about ultimate things, not immediate things. On the immediate level, people have a wide variety of desires. Some people like to travel. Some people like fine dining. Some people prefer indoor plumbing and a comfortable bed, and other people like camping. There are a million different tastes, interests, and hobbies. But if we get to the level of the heart, I think people all around the world generally want the same things. We want purpose. We want to be happy. We want to know we are okay. We want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. We want to be known by someone bigger than ourselves. And if you dig around in those desires, you'll find that most people are waiting for some word from somewhere so they can finally know the good life. They want a law or a list that will tell them the steps to take to get there. They want their teacher to say, you've passed or their parents to say, I love you. They want to get a call from their dream job or their dream date. They want to hear good news about their retirement fund or their health or their kids. Many of them are listening intently to hear from the most sacred voice they know, their own. And some are desperate to hear from God. This morning we'll be looking at the doctrine of the necessity of Scripture. The doctrine of the necessity of Scripture reminds us of our predicament, the one we need to know most cannot be discovered on our own, and it assures us of a solution. The same ineffable one has made himself known through his word. Young points us to two places to address the necessity of Scripture. The first is chapter one of the Westminster Confession. We'll spend a few moments there as we start our lesson. So, reading from the Westminster Confession, chapter one of the Holy Scripture, paragraph one, it says, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, as to leave men unexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord, at sundry times and in diverse manners, to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church. This is the first half of the paragraph, so let's deal with this by asking a few questions of the text. Um, can you see out there, uh, what do the light of nature and the works of creation and providence, which is some call, sometimes called general revelation, um, uh, sorry, uh, what, do, what do they reveal to humanity? We have goodness, wisdom, and power. Okay, so we get, we get uh, words like this from places like Romans 1, where it'll say that creation itself makes known to us God's eternal power and divine nature. Or Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Are there any limitations to this general revelation? So there's um, things that are hidden from us, uh, things that God has chosen to reveal to us and things he hasn't chosen to reveal to us. Um, from, from the text up here, do you see anything that is a limitation on the uh, general revelation? Not sufficient for? Mm-hmm. And his will, which is necessary unto salvation, right? So those things which are necessary for salvation cannot be found by communing with nature. And what are some ways that God has revealed his will in former times? You see, up here, it uses these words, sundry times and in diverse manners, okay? Can you think, in in Old Testament terms, how has God revealed his will to man and revealed himself? The law, okay? Prophets? We see types and shadows, right? Sacrificial system. Um, uh, Urim and thumum, right? These are different ways God has revealed himself and his will to his people. Um, So let's keep on reading in paragraph one. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth... And for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same holy unto writing, which maketh the holy scripture to be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people now being ceased. So one more question from this half of the paragraph. Uh, what are the reasons given for God's revelation to man to be inscripturated? Okay, so we have propagating the truth. What's that? Uh, preserving and propagating the truth, right? And that serves the purpose of establishment and comfort of the church. You See that connection up there? So, in accordance with Kevin DeYoung, we can get very frustrated when people don't see what we see. When good arguments from Scripture don't seem to carry the day. But, we should not be surprised. God's wisdom is a secret and hidden wisdom This doesn't mean that we must cross the sea or climb into the heavens to find the wisdom of God. It means God must speak to us if we are to be truly wise. All truth may be God's truth, but all saving truth is revealed truth. Okay, so I think we're ready now for our scripture text for today. Today we'll be spending most of our time in 1 Corinthians chapter two. As we read, I'll have the text up on the screen, but it might also be helpful for you to have your Bible open if you'd like to flip back and forth. Reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse one. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Concerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. All right. One thing I think is easy to notice here is that the main theme of the text is Wisdom our spiritual wisdom. And of course, wisdom is a common theme in scripture. There are whole books of the Bible dedicated to the subject of wisdom, like the book of Proverbs uh, is probably the most well-known example of that, but also there's other wisdom literature books like Job, or Ecclesiastes, or even in the New Testament, the book of James is usually recognized as wisdom literature. The theme of wisdom also appears very frequently in the letters of Paul, which we'll be addressing today. Now, honestly, this text can be rather confusing, but in referencing work by Glenn Clary, I think that the first key to see that there is that there are two kinds of wisdom. Can you see what they are here in verses six and seven? Right, right. So we have, we have on one hand, you have the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age. And on the other hand, we have a secret and hidden wisdom of God. If you scan through the chapter, you'll see Paul mentions human wisdom, for example, in verse 5, where he uses the words, the wisdom of men. And then there's this one in verse 6, the wisdom of this age, referring to what Paul calls elsewhere this present evil age and that of course is in contrast to the age to come and then in verse 13 he uses the words human wisdom so and so you have human wisdom on one hand and divine wisdom on the other hand and as we read here in verse 7 as well um, this is what we read in verse 7 so but the question for us now is what is the wisdom of god So back in chapter 1, you might have to flip a page back there, uh, Paul gives us a definition of the wisdom of God, and for Paul, the wisdom of God is the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ who is himself the wisdom of God, which you'll see in chapter 1, verse 24. It is the word of the cross, chapter 1, verse 18 or it is the message of Christ crucified, chapter 1, verse 23. And in all three of those verses, Christ and the message about Christ, the word of the cross, or Christ crucified, are referred to as divine wisdom. So that's what Paul has in mind here as we go into chapter 2. He's talking about the wisdom of the gospel, or the wisdom of Christ. Christ has become to us, wisdom from God Uh, we see that as that's the language from chapter 1 verse 30 and that divine wisdom Paul has already contrasted back in chapter 1 with human wisdom or as he puts it in chapter 1 verse 20 the wisdom of this world or the wisdom of this age which God has made foolish Another important thing that I think needs to be made clear in this chapter is that Paul is dividing humanity up into two groups. So can anybody see who who these two groups are in verses 13 and 14? Excellent. So we have those who are spiritual and the natural person, or we have uh, spiritual persons, natural persons. Um, the spiritual person is the one who has received the Holy Spirit. So the spiritual man or the spiritual person is a believer. So reading again from verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, if we can go back to verse six, Having laid that foundation, you see in the first, right, four, the fourth word in verse six is, Paul says, yet among the mature, put that in quotation marks, we do impart wisdom. Some translations render this word as perfect rather than mature. And I think maybe perfect is a better translation here because Paul is clearly not talking about mature versus immature believers. He's talking about those who have the Holy Spirit versus those who do not. The contrast is between the spiritual man and the natural man. So the spiritual man, the one who is indwelt by the Spirit of God, is perfect or complete in the sense that he has already by that Spirit been delivered from this present evil age and united to the Lord Jesus Christ, risen and ascended by the agency of the Holy Spirit. And so that's the idea that he has in view here about perfection. And it is to us that the wisdom of the gospel has been revealed by God's Spirit. The gospel wisdom is not wisdom of this age, as it says in verse 6, which God condemns as foolish and has nullified through the cross. It is the wisdom of the age to come, the final age, the age of consummation. So we're talking about heavenly wisdom here, not wisdom that is earthly or unspiritual or demonic, as James puts it in James chapter three, but the wisdom that comes from above, the wisdom that is from heaven or the wisdom that is eschatological. It's consummative, it is heavenly, right? Ultimate, Uh, it belongs to the age to come And that wisdom has now been revealed to us through the gospel. So reading from verse seven, um, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So if this secret wisdom or hidden wisdom um, is the gospel, then why would Paul be referring to this message as hidden wisdom? It is hidden to some, even in, in this age, right? Okay, and it it was hidden to all in previous age, right? So, so what we're not talking about here is something like Gnosticism, right? Something that says, well, Christianity has secret knowledge, right, That that's only, only available to a select few. Um, this, this hidden wisdom is God's eternal plan of salvation, decreed before the creation of the world. It has been fully revealed now in the fullness of time when God sent his son to redeem us and when the ascended son sent the spirit And the spirit is the revealer of this divine wisdom and that wisdom of course is the message of paul that's the wisdom paul imparted or paul preached Uh, god's eternal decree his plan of salvation is fully revealed to us through the preaching of christ crucified it is a mystery that is no longer hidden but now openly revealed But, like Dennis is saying, it remains hidden only to those who are perishing because their eyes are blinded by the God of this world. And that's why the regenerating, renewing work of the Spirit who opens the eyes to see is so imperative here in Paul's teaching. So, continue reading. Um, Now we're at verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the the Lord of glory. So the natural man and the spiritual man belong to these two different worlds, two different realms or ages. One belongs to the world of the flesh and the other the realm of the spirit. And the gospel that we talked about, this hidden wisdom, which Paul preached, reveals all the glorious benefits that God has prepared for those who love and worship Christ as the Lord of glory. And that's what Paul goes on to say, reading from verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the spirit. So in accordance with Kevin DeYoung on this passage, um, our God speaks and he speaks not simply to be heard and not merely to pass along information. He speaks so that we can begin to know the unknowable, to fathom the unfathomable. You may think you've seen it all and you've heard it all and you've experienced everything there is to experience, but you haven't seen or heard or imagined what, God, what the God of love has prepared for those who love him. This is the good news of the cross. This is the good news for the forgiven and redeemed. This is the good news you won't find anywhere else but in the word of God. So, circling back to one of the topics from our last session. We're going to discuss this a little bit. What do you think deyang means by right here where it says, know the unknowable and fathom the unfathomable? Does that sound like nonsense? Okay, so Seth is saying it's it's talking about something that cannot be known on your own, right? So something that we're not saying is that Uh, God was incomprehensible, right? But now he has become comprehensible, right? We don't want to say something like that. Um, Like he had hidden, uh, all that was hidden about God has now become manifest to us, right? Um, And we're not saying something that's merely ethical, right? Something like uh, that once we were hostile to God and are now reconciled to God. I'm not saying that we are not saying that, but, but we're saying something more than that. And Seth is pointing to something that I would call uh, eschatological here, right? He's saying something about how God has made himself known redemptive historically, right? So if we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, this is what I'm seeing here as getting at this topic about knowing the unknowable. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Note of this age. Has God not made the or made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the wi- the world did not know. Or sorry, let me start that again. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So knowing the unknowable is highlighting a contrast here between two kinds of people and a contrast, and that contrast is a two age contrast. Those who are in this present evil age and those who belong to it and who will pass away with it versus those who have been delivered from it and belong to the age to come. So let's keep reading, and we'll develop this idea a little bit more. Reading from verse 10 now. For the Spirit searches everything. So this is verse 10 in chapter 2. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So there it is. It has been revealed. It is no longer hidden. It is no longer a secret. It has been revealed through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Uh, Paul, I think, goes on here to teach that the Holy Spirit knows all things, even the deep things of God, God's eternal cre- decree of salvation, his inscrutable wisdom, which was hidden from all previous ages and remains hidden from the natural man. The Spirit reveals these things to us through the preaching of the gospel. And the Spirit not only reveals them to us, he renews our mind and enlightens our understanding so that we can comprehend them. And apart from that inward renewing work of the Spirit, we can't understand any spiritual truth. And the Holy Spirit, as Paul says, is fully capable of revealing the deep things of God, because he is God. Well, let me see if I can... So, so reading at verse 11 then, uh, for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So, Kevin DeYoung here, says that Paul knew the Corinthians needed the wisdom of God that could come only from the Spirit of God. And he wrote them this word with the understanding that he had uniquely received the Spirit whereby he could proclaim to them the truth of the gospel. Now, Picking up in verse 12. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. So spiritual things here is referring to Paul's preaching and teaching, not in words taught by human wisdom, no, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. So Paul's preaching is, consisted of explaining the things of the Spirit in the words of the Spirit to those who were given the Spirit. The natural man, of course, the one without the Spirit, can't understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay. So, in accordance with Kevin D. Young here, people talk about spirituality as if it were generated by concentrated attention to the inner workings of the human soul. But true spirituality is not something found within us. It is something outside of us, created by the agency of God's transcendent Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit who is from God, if we are to understand the things of God. And where do we go to hear from God's Spirit? To those who are or were entrusted to be the very mouthpiece of the Spirit. To those who wrote the very oracles of God to those who have written down what God himself has breathed out. So this is the necessity of scripture in a nutshell. We need the revelation of God to know God and the only sure, saving, final, perfect revelation of God is found in scripture. So, reading from verse 15 now. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So again, That's the point of verse fifteen. The spiritual man who is indwelt by the Spirit, renewed and enlightened, and directed by the Spirit, illumined by the Spirit, has enabled or and is enabled by the Spirit to do what the natural man cannot do to understand the gospel. And then Paul closes out here in verse 16, For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? Citing Isaiah 40, verse 13. But we have the mind of Christ. So we're back to knowing the unknowable again, right? We have the Spirit, therefore we have the mind of Christ. The Holy Spirit reveals to us the deep things of God, meaning the eternal counsel and hidden wisdom of God, which had been kept hidden from all generations before the coming of Jesus and now has been made known through the gospel. It's still hidden to those who are blinded by the God of this world, the natural man but it is known by us who have been given the spirit and who therefore have the mind of Christ. So this is actually going a lot faster than I thought it was gonna go. Um, So we're gonna uh, maybe discuss a little bit here um, in Hebrews uh, chapter one, if you'd like to flip, flip there in your Bibles. So, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 reads like this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. So the first question that we have from this text here is, what is the form of communication for all saving knowledge? Right. This is knowledge that, uh, not general revelation like we talked about before, but the form of communication for all saving knowledge. Can you see it up there? Okay, but um, what is common to what is common to the prophets and his son? Because what the po- prophets spoke was saving knowledge as well, right? So, what is what is the mo- the mode of communication for all saving knowledge? His speech, right? In both of these, we have uh, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And he has spoken to us by his son, right? So speech is common to both of these. So the question now, maybe to ask, is what does the need for God's spoken word? It's the question of the necessity of scripture. What does the need for God's spoken word to be written down and preserved say about the world and about Satan? Right. So, if if we do not have God's word written down and preserved, then God's word is likely to be misrepresented by His enemies. Right. That's exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. Right. Actually, since we have time, I, I think I'm going to go there. This is the passage that Aletha brought up the last time we were in this uh, book, uh, Matthew chapter four, verses four through ten. Uh, So maybe I'll just start in verse 1 and go through 10. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things, or all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So you see see here, Satan is using scripture, quoting it, right, but taking it. Like, out of context, not seeing God's revelation to man as a, um, as a whole, but he puts one part of God's revelation against other parts of his revelation, right? Um, and it says the same things about us as well. Let's see here. Let's take a look at Luke. Chapter one, verse three. So um, what is the, and and the the context for for this passage is, what is the necessity for God's spoken word to be written down and preserved, say about us even as believers? To brainstorm about that a little bit, what does it say about us that we need to have God's word written down, even if we have? What's that? Okay. Right. Even even the regenerate do right. What what is it? I mean, so um, there's still there's still some corruption that remains in the heart even of the regenerate, right? There is. Um, we need, so in this passage, it says, it seemed good to me also to having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So we have inscripturation, right? And why? That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So without, without scripture, we have uncertainty, right? There's the dynamic. Or let's take a look at now Luke. That was Luke. Uh, let's go to Romans 15, verse 4. <coughs> so this one reads, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Right? In scripturation, that... <laughs> Through endurance and through the encouragement of scriptures, we might have hope, right? So the relationship here is um, even, even those who are regenerate can um, lack hope and need encouragement, right? And it is the um, soundness, the um, unchangeable character of scripture, the fact that it has a truth that is um, – uh, it's a – it's a rock for us to go to, right? Um, and it serves that purpose even for the regenerate, because without it, we waver in ourselves. Okay. Let's maybe get back to our study after a little discourse there. Um, so let's talk about personal <coughs> applications, and these are a couple that I just thought of, but let me know if there's anything that stands out to you as well. So before we close, um, let's consider some personal applications for the doctrine of the necessity of Scripture. I think that one of the most important things to highlight as far as personal application is our utter and complete dependence on the Holy Spirit for having the ability to understand the gospel. We should not seek it anywhere other than from God by his spirit. It should drive us to prayer for spiritual illumination, uh, to understand the things that God has revealed to us. And... Second point I had up there is um, the doctrine of the necessity of scripture should also lead us to pray for those who are in darkness, to pray for those whose minds are blinded by the God of this world because they don't have the spirit that can, well, because they don't have the spirit that can er, can discern the things of the spirit Or understand them, but it regards them as foolish. So how how is it that they are going to come to faith in Christ without the power of God, without the Spirit working in them and revealing things to them? Um, It is not by human wisdom. It is only by the Spirit of God. Only spiritual renewal and illumination can actually bring someone to saving faith. Those are any points that you wanted to add here in terms of personal w- application? Those are just go ahead. All right, so that would be encouragement for a believer, right? When you see somebody wavering in their convictions or struggling with um, their what they're experiencing in life to to point them back to that solid foundation. That would be a very helpful tool. So uh, that's what we have for today for chapter six entitled "God's Word is Necessary." It is worth mo- taking a moment at the end of this chapter to consider what a difference these these last four chapters have made or make in the life and godliness of Christian experience. Um, uh, De Young grouped these last four together into you know the attributes of Scripture. We look at number or chapter three. It was entitled "God's Word is Enough." So the benefit of the fact of God's word being enough is that counselors can counsel meaningfully, right? Because Scripture is sufficient. Um, perspicuity, yeah. Uh, chapter four. Uh, Bible study leaders can lead confidently because scripture is, le- is clear. Um, chapter five, preachers can preach with boldness because their biblical text is authoritative. And chapter six, an evangelist can evangelize with urgency because the scripture is necessary. I hope that this was an uh, enjoyable discussion, and uh, I hope that you'll join us next time when we'll be going through chapter 7 called Christ's Unbreakable Bible. That's all I have for today, so thank you.